This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Ruck. Today is the 6th of July, which may to some mean the third day of the pubs being open. But for rugby in England, it means day one of stage two, which, to make it a bit less like an instruction manual, means that professional rugby players can train like normal professional rugby players again. They can tackle, they can ruck, the game can become a contact sport once again. What is it going to look like a little further down the line? Now, that is the subject of the ruck today. Where is the game going? This is the crystal ball that we've all been trying to read since lockdown and the economic tsunami that went hurtling over with it. What, therefore, is the regular life of a professional rugby player going to be? So this is a kind of special edition of The Ruck, so special that we've got no Jonesy, no Lawrence, no Alex Lowe or Stuart Barnes. And I know that might be hard to live with, but I think we've done much better. Instead, we've recruited experts working in different parts of the game who will have a far better idea of the answers. So I'm really pleased to introduce today the following. We have Mark Lambert, who was a professional rugby player. I'm thinking 12 days ago, Mark. Would that be right or is it 13 now? Uh, Well, I suppose officially my contract ended on the 30th of June, as they do. So, yeah, less than a week ago, really. But it was announced announced a week and a bit ago, yeah. So So Mark uh, had 251 appearances for Harlequins. He... um, been a, a professional player since well, I, 2004, I think. Correct. Oh three. I played. I made my made my debut in 2004 with uh, a certain man on the call as my um as my director of rugby. That was the year we got relegated. So we don't need to talk about it. But that's when I started. <laughs> that's when I started my uh, my Premiership career in 2004. Correlation and causation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Mark, even 251 appearances is, is extraordinary. Um, all for one club, which is also a, a great thing. Uh, in, in the, the way the game is. But you, you've seen the game from different aspects. I think I'm right that you had something like four and a half, five years between your first start and your second start for Harlequins because you experienced the, the hardships and the um, injury side of the game as well. Yeah, I, uh, it definitely was a career of two halves for me. So I played pretty young. I was 19. Uh, I think I was one of the youngest players to play for Quinns at that time. There was a raft of injuries and I got called up to play three games in the 04-05 season. And then, as, again, as Mark will know well, I had uh, some pretty horrendous years with injury. I had a really com- complicated and unusual brain injury, which I thought had ended my career at 20 in 2005. And then came back from that basically a year out of the game and then 
playing for England under-21s a year later, managed to dislocate my knee, which I then came back from and, and did a second time. So my first five years of professional rugby, I actually played seven first-team games until the age of 23 at Quinns. And then in the next 10 years, I played about 235. So yeah, it was definitely, definitely a career of two halves. Would you say that that experience, to an extent, channeled your, your interest in, into the sort of leadership part of the game? You're now the chairman of the Rugby Players Association, and by definition, you're interested in the welfare of your, of your fellow players and how they're, how they're looked after and the, the sort of lives that they, that they get to lead. Yeah, 100%. I'd say probably twofold. I think that's definitely one part of it, which is, as you say, it made me very aware of the welfare challenges that current professional players face. And also, I think at a young age, I realised that it was all going to end one day. And it, it puts things into pretty sharp perspective when you go through those challenges as, as a young guy. And I think those years I went through gave me the opportunity to stand back and be more objective around the opportunity that I had to play professional sport and make the most of that. And so I think I've tried to represent the players through the RPA. I've been involved in, I've basically tried to take all the opportunities that rugby's given me. I've been involved in the charitable side of it, worked more generally with the club. And all the way down to making the most of European away trips and the nights out. You know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities that come your way, which are pretty special and unique. And I think when you face losing that at the age of 20, you probably realise that for however long your career runs, and I was fortunate enough to go to 35, you just got to make the most of those opportunities as and when they arrive, really. Maybe someone somewhere down the line we can do another special on um, best European away trips with Mark Lambert. <laughs> I've got um, a list. I've got a list. Yeah. <laughs> you just mentioned a former boss of yours who's also on this pod, which is Mark Evans. Mark's not totally new to this parish. He's one of our very favourites. The Uber administrator, the man we're regularly touting on this platform as the next head of the RFU or the next chairman of World Rugby or the British government or, or whichever he fancies that week. So that's Mark Evans, who was director of rugby at Quinns, chief executive at Quinns. Mark, you're, you're now running... Global Rapid Rugby in Perth from the UK. Are you also the um, kind of the chief executive of a super rugby franchise at the moment yeah. as well? Yeah, because am, Western, yeah. Western Force yeah. are back in. Correct. Yes. So it's, it's quite interesting. We started uh, last weekend and we had a bye. So we're undefeated. <laughs> well done. So great job by you so far. How are you handling that challenge of, of running two rugby organisations from a couple of miles away or... Well, it's okay, actually. I mean, it's getting a little bit more tricky now. I mean, it's, it's been a while now and it's been fine. I mean, you just have to get up in the middle of the night every night and that can be a bit, that can be challenging. Health, you know, not health-wise, but, you know, sort of fatigue-wise. It was a time of great change in Asia-Pacific rugby anyway. I mean, this has just accelerated it. We talk quite a lot about, oh, it's 2025, come five years early. And well, you know, there was going to be one more cycle of Super Rugby going for another five years on the broadcast cycle. And that's not going to happen now. I mean, everyone knows it's not going to happen. And no one's quite sure what's going to replace it. But everyone knows that the, the days of flying to Buenos Aires and Joburg or, you know, a flight from Perth to Joburg, change at Joburg and another one down to Cape Town. It, look, from a whole raft of reasons, from climate change through to cost, through to player welfare, I think it's generally accepted now that is not going to be the way things are going forward. So there's a lot of negotiation and a lot of chat going on at the moment about what comp it is and who's in it and what time and, and all those sorts of things, which was going to happen anyway. It was generally thought it would be another four or five years before that restructuring took place. 
and what COVID's done is to sort of, you know, just accelerate it. Just on the first weekend of, of Super Rugby Aussie style, which you just had, the Kiwi version's been pretty well received, not only by them, but all around the world. How's the Aussie version, got, week, weekend one, gone down, you think, Mark? It, was, it, it wasn't bad. It, I mean, two close games. They're being played behind sort of limited crowds. It's not completely behind closed doors. There's a spike in Melbourne, so the Rebels have had to go to New South Wales and base oh, themselves yeah. there, and you can't get into Melbourne now, and... There's still a border closure of Western Australia where we're based. So, you know, the likelihood is we're going to have to go to New South Wales for a while. Melbourne Storm and the NRL are, are in Queensland. And, and most of the AFL teams have gone to Queensland too. Everyone's working really, really hard to get something on. And, and you have to admire the sort of, there is a very strong can-do attitude. And it's partly to, because sport is so much more central to the culture and it's so much better connected into government. And so you are talking directly with the Premier's office. You know, now that's almost impossible to imagine, not just in rugby in the UK, but in most sports in the UK. It's a, there's a much bigger divide between the government and sport than there is in Australia and, and New Zealand as well. So I also want to introduce uh, our third guest, Steve Vaughan, who is Chief Executive of WASPs. Not, not just WASPs Rugby anymore, Steve, are you? You're, you're bigger and more important than that now. Much, much bigger, much more important, yeah. <laughs> Most people know WAS Rugby as, as the rugby club, but uh, you've been chief executive of the rugby club for a, a, a year now, but I think you've just, you've just broadened your, uh, to, to running the, the wider business, which is the stadium, the hotel, the casino. Yes, the initial kind of uh, remit was sport, which was obviously rugby, um, netball, and, and all of the commercial and financial areas surrounding that. And then uh, we've got a recent change uh, of, of, of direction. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm now incorporating everything else, which is all of the new projects we're going on. So new training ground, we're actually building a new hotel as well. And we have a hotel, conference and exhibitions, conference, etc. So in real terms, the actual financial landscape of it is the rugby side of it is less than a third of our interest, actually. In terms of someone running a club, and we, I, I think we were all smart enough to understand that, that there's been some struggles. So you, you, you've not only been without a, an income stream from from the rugby, you've not, you obviously not had any fans or, or, or coming through, or you haven't had any income from your, your other streams, so your hotel and your casinos. So you're looking in pretty good shape, given that, Steve. I can't see the, the lines on your face, but maybe just that's the um, that's the Zoom call and the position that you position your camera in. You'd be lucky it wasn't Friday this call. I, I had a haircut yesterday, and uh, I literally looked like Leo Sayer until 24 hours ago. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, look, you've just got to deal with it, haven't you? Um, yeah, it's been a huge impact to the to, to the business and everybody's. It's all relative, I guess. If you take, I don't know, a Gloucester, a Harlequins, a Leicester, a Northampton, where they're traditional rugby clubs, pretty much all of their income, if not 90% of it, would be to do with rugby. Ours is more spread. So you get the ups and the downs with that. So the upside is that when it starts coming back, you've got a lot more different strands, different levers to pull, rather than concentrating all your eggs in one basket. But yeah, of course, it's been huge. We've had to cancel three sell out concerts um, in the stadium we've had to you know um, postpone a lot of things including the sports but our supporters going back to the kind of the sporting side our supporters have been incredible and you know we, we offer them a, a number of different options with regards to what they could do with regards to games this year being played behind closed doors more than three quarters so far have, have told us that they either want us to take their money over to next year as some kind of credit or to or to to, to, to donate that money to our foundation so there's been a real together type of spirit, real camaraderie between the groups. But um, yeah, of course, it's been a 
anybody that sits here today and says it hasn't been an impact, it has. It's been a, an enormous impact. Actually, if you think about rugby or premiership rugby in the last few years, you've all seen the numbers. You know, the clubs were losing more than £40 million as a, as a, as a, as a gross last year, uh, 13 clubs. And um, I actually think this, tragic as it is, has actually accelerated a number of things that we were going to have to do anyway. Now, we all talk about sustainability, but the reality is we, we, we needed to do something. And it's awful that it's, it affects people, it affects jobs, livelihoods, incomes and, and, and you know, mindset and mental health probably off the back of that. But I genuinely believe that it, it has just moved forward a number of um, sensible things that we're going to have to do anyway. But yeah, so it's, it's been, been really difficult, but we're very blessed to be in sport. I believe we're very blessed to be in rugby and we're just going to have to deal with it. And we'll all talk about what an unbelievable year 2020 was um, one day, no doubt. To the three of you, people, rugby fans looking at the game, desperate for it to come back. When they're asking, is it going to be the same? Will, will rugby be be the same in a year's time or two years' time? When we're sort of at the other side of, of COVID, say, Will we look at this as the corona blip or I think two of you have suggested already that actually the game's changed so much already that it, we won't, we can't possibly slip back to where we were before. I hope so, would be my argument. I hope we don't go back to the way we were before. Although I'm not as perhaps as optimistic as I was a couple of months ago because and it depends on which part of the world we're talking about. So if we're just talking about England, which I think we are, then then fine because... There's a whole host of other things that are going on in other parts of the world, and they're very variable. But if you took a look at it from England's point of view, I was really hopeful this would act as a catalyst, and I'm a little bit disappointed so far, if I'm honest. I think the lack of collective action has been really disappointing. I think it's actually shown that, and I know I often say this, uh, so I apologise for repeating myself, that when you get a huge shock, if your structures aren't right, then it shows really, really quickly. And this is as huge a shock as anyone could have envisaged. And it's shown that actually some of the structures we should have had in place for many, many years, and that some people have argued for for many, many years, aren't there. Having individual clubs negotiate with individual players in this situation when costs are a huge concern, is, is just not the way, the best way to do it. It's a really suboptimal position because you get some... No, 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 one, no one would have wanted that to have been the case. I mean, let, as I say, let, let's not go too deeply into that sort of part of it itself. But you said you were hoping that this would be, COVID could, could be something, a catalyst for, for a change. And, and yeah. Steve, Steve, you just said, oh, this could accelerate change and move us forward, which sounds like progress rather than regress. Yeah, I think from, from our point of view, again, I think we'd all be violently agreeing on a number of things here. And uh, I know we don't want to talk too much about the past, but we, sh- we also shouldn't avoid it, I guess. Things haven't worked out ideally in a number of respects. And uh, when it comes down to initial thoughts and conversations around dealing with, um, you know, we haven't just got to think about the clubs here. You've got the players, you've got supporters, you've got different stakeholders, owners who are, who are going through enormous stress at the moment, and also rights holders, sponsors, as an enormous amount of different kind of legs on this thing but I agree with Mark with respect to ideally you would have had a, a more agreed approach from, from across the piece and but I think we all know the structure of, of what we're dealing with at the moment you have got 13 individual clubs who effectively are paddling their own canoes to a point and that is quite difficult sometimes you, you'll have a club that's owned by a billionaire in the same group of, uh, uh, of people of, of clubs that are literally just wanting to 
stay, you know, keep their heads, heads above water in, in a very difficult market. And that can often lead to kind of different objectives within one group. I mean, I, I've said it many times and I've always favoured, this is personal, this is not wasps or anything. I've always favoured the either Australia or American approach from NRL where they have a commissioner, an independent commissioner around things. And I believe sometimes you have to take ownership away sometimes from people with, with their own interests in things. Easier said than done. This format was put in place many, many moons ago. I think by and large, one of the positives about this period, genuinely, this is not a party political broadcast for, for, for anything to do with Premiership Rugby or, or, or WASP. There's been a lot more best, uh, best practice shared between clubs. Clubs have got together more because this crisis has made them, but inevitably there are people with very different objectives and, and that has led to maybe some suboptimal solutions at the end of it, which, you know, maybe as clubs, not all of us have completely agreed, but we've got on with it and, and tried, to, tried to move with them. In terms of going forward, the way I'm seeing it, and I might be a mindless fool thinking this, but we've had this forced upon us, but I think if you look at where we were and where we are, I think you know, we, we need to look at now how we get fans back into the stadium, how we engage sponsors again, and how we you know, readdress what we do in the community. And for us, on a very local level, by the way, so I apologise for the granular detail, but you know, it's making us think more about what we do around Stadia. So you know, making sure that we have digital ticketing, for example, so we don't need to have that hands-on experience, making sure that our stadium is cashless by the time that we reopen again and look at all of our protocols around the stadium. So, we are, for example, we know that, that we can bring in X amount of people on a one metre social distancing at the moment. The government allowed us to. So we're very hopeful that we can start to ratchet back up and we are going to have to work differently. Uh, of course, we're going to have to work differently. And as we go forward, as we know, you know, cost implications around running a rugby club will change slightly with the, the salary cap changes that are going to come on board from 21, 22. So we're using this period to try to get ourselves in that right place. So we can keep looking back, but we can't fix what's happened. We can try and fix what we do in the future. And it isn't perfect, but I do think there will be some good things come out of this and clubs will have to reset. Most clubs will reset and want to reset because they needed to. I think this is just going to force a change a bit quicker. Mark Lambert, from a, a player's point of view, from the outside, we, we see what's, what's going on. We see wage cuts that players have been obliged to accept. It looks a fairly bleak situation. You just heard... Um, both Steve and Mark say, well, change could trigger something better in the future. Is, is that a sort of a, a future that you can't quite see yet because it's too far off? I'll always be an optimist. That's the reason that I have done the work I've done with the RPA for so long. And the reason I hold the role I do is because I'm an optimist about making positive change in the future. And, and I, I retain that optimism even after the last few months. I think the big thing for me that players want really is certainty whether that's certainty around their contractual status, whether that's certainty around the game they're going to be playing. And I'd say probably top of that list for me at the moment in terms of what the future looks like is certainty from a welfare point of view. So as the game changes, as we make adjustments, whether it's stepping into the bright new future that people are hoping it could be or some version of it, for me, that's just a clear definition of what that means for a player because I think you've got the very short term, which is finishing this season. You've got the medium term, which is probably the challenges of the next 18 months and how we extricate ourselves from the situation that has been taken out of our hands through this pandemic. And then long term, what the next three, five, ten years looks like. And I think all of that, the most important thing from a player point of view is for players to come on that journey, feel like they're informed, feel like they know what's being asked of them and have really clear parameters. because. Most players, firstly, are desperate to get back and play because that's what rugby players do. But most players 
are, are aware of the part they play as, as as part of the whole of the game and as of the industry and to clubs and supporters and all of those things. You know, uh, it's just about a clear understanding of what that future is going to look like. So I do think, and then and then the, the stage after that is it's making those decisions around what the future looks like. And then it's having the structures in place, which, which Ev spoke about, and the governance behind it to make sure that that is actually the way that things happen. You know, so if there are welfare provisions brought in or season structures brought in, and there are elements to that around protecting players within those systems, then that actually has to be the case. And those things have to be implemented and, uh, and governed and players will be reassured of that. And I think if those things happen and that journey is followed and players are taken on that journey, then I absolutely think that players would be positive around the central part they can play in the future of the game. But that, to me, is is the starting point, is that clarity for the future, really. Do you think there will be a, a new generation of players or current players who will be looking at asking, is that the career that I actually really want now because because of the uncertainty you're talking about? For me, and I've, I've been incredibly fortunate, as we said at the start, I've just stepped out of a 17-year career, so I'm only just freshly out of it. But I think there's two sides to it. It is a job and it does become a job after a period of time. And, and I know it is the dream for some people, but it is incredibly hard. You know, there's there's huge ups and downs. It's not the utopia for every player, maybe for the top five or 10%. You know, it, it, it is unbelievable. And they have their challenges as well. I'm not saying they don't, but there's a there's a full range of people that play professional rugby. But from a kind of an emotional side of it and the thing which the reason you fall in love with the game as a five-year-old kid and you keep playing all the way through, that stuff's just as special as it always was. Being part of a team, being in that environment, aspiring to achieve something, the cultural, those sorts of things, that hasn't changed around rugby. There's probably a few of the old school elements that I'll push some of the younger guys in the clubs to try and retain because I think that's what builds culture. So there's that side of it, which I think will always stay in rugby, you know, the cultural brotherhood, that side. And then it's the it's about retaining that and what makes rugby special with what the necessity of the future is, which is professionalism, certainty, contractual rights, and having a workplace. You know, what we've said for a number of years at the RPA is we want England to be the best place in the world to play domestic rugby. And that's, that's, you get that through working as, you know, the players can't do that on their own. The clubs can't do that on their own. The RFU can't do that on their own. That has to be something which is a collective goal to achieve. And I think if you're moving in that direction and there's a genuine desire to create that future, then absolutely you know, players will want to step into that space and continue to aspire to do that. But there are a lot of steps on that journey to get to that point. And I think it's just acknowledging that and saying, you know, for the future player, for the 16-year-old now who's looking at that career, when he gets there in two years' time, I want us to be in a position where he knows, where he's in a position to maybe have the 17-year career that I had when I, that I started as an 18-year-old. Um, and that's, that's the reason I, I do the job. Steve, that sounds. Who would disagree with that? That you would want England to be the best place in the world to play professional rugby. I mean, at the moment, the clubs are struggling, like every um, every business is, to pay wages that they were paying a year ago. So it's obvious, isn't it, that you would want other to be able to appeal to players in other ways, such as the way you look after them, the best place in the world to play rugby. It's not easy. Um, however, what I would say is. Um, to take the finances away from it a second, and I'm sure Mark would say the same at Quinn's, I have no doubt, but I've only been in rugby for seven odd years now. I was at Gloucester and then over to Wasps. And even in that short period of time, I've seen the, um, the player welfare side, whether it be you know, the thoughts about resting players around international periods, whether it be food 
nutrition, strength and conditioning, medical, sports psychology, sleep awareness. It's, it's come on leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds. And, you know, the oft mentioned thoughts about, you know, I don't want to play in X country because of, I, th- I think still applies. And I certainly think there's a lot of care there. And I think the RPA play a big part in that, actually, with regards to that, you know, very economical way for the players to have those other options should they want to talk to people. And we're very, very keen on, as you'd expect any good employer to be keen on, on, on ensuring that players are given every vehicle that they can to ensure that they're after rugby welfare is taken care of as well. So all those things are extremely important. Now, the recent focus has been very much around finance and has been around salaries. I think what we can't escape from the fact is clearly this is a global issue. Now, I've recently, as you'd expect, had numerous conversations over the last few months, whether it be weekly calls with a leadership group, whether it be face-to-face or face-to-mask, as it was last week, with, um, with, with all of the playing squad. And then individual conversations with those people as well. And obviously, it dominates at the moment with the recent pay cuts that, that, that have been put in place. But it's been very interesting because I think most people get it, absolutely get it. I think we've got to be we've got to be careful here of I think creating something that really isn't there and um, and I don't know I know there'll be certain clubs with certain issues I get that but I think across the across the board mainly as long as to Mark Lambert's point if you communicate to people man to, adult to adult have that conversation show them the numbers explain to them the issues and also explain a way back that when these things come back round, we're all going to share in that, by the way, and this is how we're going to do it. It is difficult at the moment. You know, we have been closed for, for, for over a quarter of the year, but I still think that nine out of the 10 principles remain. The players get, hopefully, across my, all of the clubs, get really well looked after on the field, off the field. All those other elements, you know, they've got lots of people that they can talk to around mental well, well-being, etc. as well. Uh, very open environments. And the salary is one part of it. And, you know, I've had many conversations in the last... 14 days with players on an individual basis. And every, every, every player, as Mark will know, is in a different place in their, in, in their life. You'll have players that are earning, which to all of us would be extremely fantastic salaries, but it's a, it's a, it's a portion of people. You'll be chatting to people that are earning £400,000 a year and people that are earning £30,000 a year. It's a very different take on life. Some of these people can't afford a mortgage and are struggling to pay their rent. And other people are managing the expectations of their partners, or whoever it is, thinking, well, I'm 28, 29 years old. In my mind, I was going to get paid X on the next pay, and that's not happening anymore. So it's about having those individual conversations with people, being honest with them, and having conversations about where the market is. Because if you are a 28, 29-year-old player, and you're earning very well, and you thought that that next deal was going to be a bumper one for you, then I guess at some stage, you've got to take some responsibility. Okay, well, I can either retain my position at X club, and take an offer that they may offer me or, or, or stay on contract. Or I could, um, I guess, reserve my rights and think about going somewhere else now or in the future. You've got to back your fitness, you've got to back your form, etc. versus security. So it's, it's really quite individual to my, to my point. And players are single-minded. They're single-minded because you need them to be single-minded. I agree with everything Stephen said, but I'd overlay on top of that. The problem with saying, well, we'll do it at club by club level, is that you get the best and the worst practice. You have no consistency, which is the point Mark made. But we've got some really big things missing in our game in this country. For example, minimum wage. Why haven't we got a minimum wage? It's, mm. it's, 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 it's a disgrace. The championship. Everyone talks about the premiership all the time. What about, what about the, real, the real guys who are, who are battling just to, to keep a career going in the championship? We have to try and come to a collective 
bargaining agreement, which gives us, a, a, if you like, a, a bucket we can put in all these issues of welfare and salary levels and pension arrangements and minimum wage and, yeah, maybe maximum squad size and all those other stuff so that you get the economic interests of the different stakeholders that Steve referred to quite correctly aligned. Our interests are the different elements of the sport in this country at club level, and we shouldn't blame the RFU because you don't need the RFU to fix this. Premier Rugby and the RPA, it would be helpful if the, if the RFU was in, in the tripartite agreement as well, I do accept. But for the vast majority of players, they get paid by one person, by their club. And when TV rights are rising and salaries are rising, no one ever thinks there's a need for it because everybody's doing okay, thanks, in comparison to where they were. When crisis hits, that's when you realise that actually this isn't probably the best system for us to have on both sides. I absolutely agree with the principles of what I've said there. I am absolutely in favour of a collaborative, consultative approach to take things forward for the future of the game. I think it is the best for, I think is the best for the game. And as Mark said, you share in the upside, everyone acknowledges the downside, and you also establish long-term principles, which means every time something needs to change, you're not going back to re-argue and bicker over the smallest details because those principles are in place and the structures are in place. And I, I absolutely think that, that that is the way forward. And also to go back to Stephen's point, the welfare side of things as a game in terms of the research we do, the amount of investment we put into it, that for me is the perfect example of what can be achieved through collaboration in the game in England. So I've been fortunate enough in my role as chair to sit on you know, I'm, sit I'm sitting on the Rugby Restart group now, bringing the game back. I sit on the Sports Science Advisory group. And some of the things that are achieved through world-leading research into injury and into concussion and some of the work that's been done around getting players back to stage two, which we obviously referenced at the start of this, has been fantastic. And the way that people have worked together in that scenario has been absolutely brilliant. But that, for me, is a very small example of what we should be looking to achieve as a whole game and so the collaboration around sports science and medicine the way that the chief medical officers and head of sports science at clubs get together that is a perfect example of what can be achieved when it comes to season structure and salary cap and welfare provisions and game limits and squad sizes and minimum wages and all the things that Knox talking about all of those things are eminently achievable but you need to have the starting point for me is an established way of working and principles and process and governance which makes sure that when you achieve all of those things, they're not just kind of getting thrown into the, you know, thrown against the wall and hoping that some of it sticks because actually you know that what you're achieving is going in and that is going to be what the identity of the game is going forward. And that is why I, I had the aspiration to become chair in this role and why I've done it for three years and I hopefully keep working in this space is because I am optimistic about the change that can be made and so many of the building blocks are in place in English rugby with a lot of the work that goes on at, lower level and a, and a group level and the detail that goes into there's so many building blocks in place to to take things forward into a really positive future i think there just needs to be the appetite and the and the vision to move in that direction and i, I do think it is achievable millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Stig Abel. I'm Asma Mir, and you can hear our breakfast program on Times Radio. Join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 6am to 10am on Times Radio. Know your times. On, on the ruck, and we, we, we should start sort of summing up really, but it appears to me that, that we've um, solved the whole process here, haven't we? We've got a, a player, we've got, a, we, we've got a man who leads a club, and we've got our Uber administrator all agreeing that um, a little bit of collaboration and, the, and the, the game could be a better place. Even the man from the media agrees as well, even though we'll, we'll miss all the, the rucks and the arguments if that ever, um, if we ever did get Oh, that. oh don't worry. Still, look, don't, this idea that this will take all the, all the is, is nonsense. I mean, the ferociousness, I, I was working in the NRL when we did one of the, these CBAs, and the ferociousness of the negotiation between the players' union and the, and the governing body was extraordinary. That's as it should be. I mean, I've got no time, by the way, just to throw in, I've got no time for these people to say, oh, the RPA is, is conflicted because they're funded by the, the league and the, and the RFU. That's how every players' association is funded all over the world in every sport. Look around. The whole point is that's part of the negotiation that goes in, and it should be linked to the broadcast cycle because that's our main source of income. Okay, so basically, I remember we would, I was doing some, helping some work, prepare them for the NRF, the CBA back in 2015. And that was for a broadcast cycle starting in 2018. You know, these things take a long, long time and you won't get it. You won't get everything in the first one. There will will be issues you just won't be able to come to an agreement on and you'll just have to park it till the next time because yeah, they're 500 pages long, some of these documents. The, 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 the longest one, I think, is the NBA one. It's 500 pages long. I mean, we had 84 negotiating points going into the one in, back in 2015. That's what a grown-up league does. It's what a grown-up players' association does. It's what a grown-up league does. And that would be my number one wish, amongst a pretty long list, of things that could come out of this crisis. Jen, can we just sign off by just a a wee question or two to to each of you? So we're sort of trying to establish or guess at or look at where the game game might be in in a year or two. 
Steve, do you think in, in a year or two's time we will have the premiership clubs running businesses that, that kind of make sense and more sense than they made six months ago before COVID came along? Good question, really. I mean, we're, we're still in the hands of, of other people to let us know what we can and can't do to a large extent. But assuming we can get crowds back in, assuming that we can execute all of our rights for, for sponsors, which actually some of the sponsors have, have had better time whilst we haven't been playing rugby because of some of the creative ideas that people like to, to dream up. Assuming that you know the television rights are still as attractive as before, if not if not more so. You've only got to look at some of the, the football uh, audiences on TV since we've been in lockdown. And, and you could argue that, you know, the, the, the numbers should actually go north because of the amount of viewers. If everything returns roughly to normal, I think it's going to take a little... The, the, I think the tail's going to be a bit longer. You know, I was having a conversation with a particular club which were telling me that their demographic of supporters is typically, you know, white male between the ages of. And their ages of was, was is the oldest in the Premiership. And arguably, if you're 70-plus, you may decide as much as you might like Club A, you just don't want to risk it. You just don't want to come back to, 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 to watch professional sport at that particular time. So I think we've got to be quite creative about how we... I mean, manage those things for people that can't come anymore to make them still part of the immersive experience. I just want to address it here now, the, the, the cuts around the, the playing departments that, that people are putting across the clubs. It helps, but it helps. It doesn't solve the problem. So will clubs be running sustainable businesses and all the rest of it in a year's time? I expect not. I expect not because I think the damage is so great in this period of time. It's going to take a little bit of time. And I've had this conversation with players when they've said, well, when do you think we're going to be back to full crowds? When do you think we're going to be back to this, this, and you know, it's difficult to say. You've got a lot of your commercial partners at the moment got their own businesses, and they're questioning: Can we spend our disposable income on X club anymore, or do we need that actually for our own businesses? At the moment, people still seem to be really salivating over sport, which is great. So there isn't as much impact there as as what we, we thought there might have been. But I think it's going to take more than a year. I think it's going to take more than a year. I think there's going to be a lot of new normal. We were picking a game. We put the game out in the air and said, OK, if our Worcester game at home was at the end of August and the government said to us, you can, you can open up your stadium, how many people could you bring in? And it's not as easy as saying we can bring in 10,000 people. Uh, you've got to think about the egress. You've got to think about how these people go to the toilet. How many people go to the concourse at the same time? Do they have to leave in time slots? What do you do about signage, testing, heat detection, etc.? So... We're learning as we go a little bit here, but what I do think is learning from what New Zealand have done, what Australia have done, what the Bundesliga we're doing, the French federations, etc. I think we can we can take some learnings from those. I absolutely believe that this calendar year we'll be seeing crowds back in stadia. Fingers crossed. And I'm not going to talk about what we're doing at Wasp because you've not brought me on here to, to, to promote Wasp, but we're in a position where we've we've got ourselves right at the forefront of that behind the scenes. To make sure that as soon as the you know the, the box goes from from amber to green, we're ready to go. But that's communications. It's ticketing. It's it's it's, it's what you do with people that are a little bit reticent about coming. What do you do about the algorithms of groups, etc.? How do you use all the clean spaces within the stadium to to, to house people? We're very fortunate. We've got a thirty thousand plus stadium, which is effectively a Premier League football stadium. You know, with a huge car parking and hotels etc whereas a lot of clubs don't have that so we're quite fortunate from, from that respect but I think it's going to take more than a year I would be delighted if we were sitting here next July having potentially finished next season and gone wow that, that all came back very quickly but I do think there's going to be a little bit 
a little bit of um, a, a kind of suck it and see from, from both our side and also from the reactions of what happens the first time we do find something. Do we go into panic state? Do we manage it correctly? And Mark was saying earlier at the moment, you know, the, the chief medical officers, the medical people at the club, people like Phil Winstanley, the RPA, they're all doing a fantastic job to make sure we've got all of these things ticked off. Every eventuality, whether it's liability, whether it's process, what we do to stretch the NHS versus not stretching the NHS. So behind the scenes, lots of things are in play, but it's, it's, it's purely a gut feel. I think we'll, we'll, we'll all have to manage our costs differently going forward. We'll all have to restructure ourselves very differently going forward. And I think add on when things come on. So, you know, get yourself ready for X, but when Y and Z come on board, make sure you're nimble enough and quick enough to add on to, to, to do that as good as if not better than you did before. I don't think normal exists anymore, by the way. I think there'll be a new normal. Mark Lambert, do you think we could, will get to the point of a game that, that you said you would love to see where an English club or English rugby would be the best place for a rugby player to choose to play? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As I said, I think there's a huge amount of the building blocks in place for that, for English rugby to move in that direction. I think... As I said at the start, you know, we've got the short, medium and long term here. And there is, in the short and medium term, there's going to need to be some flexibility and collaboration and all the words we've used to this point to get through this period. You know, we fully acknowledge that there's some commercial imperatives driving some things as well here. But to go back to what Mark said, I think there's also a big opportunity for the long term future of what the game can be in this period. And, and what I really hope we avoid as a game is in solving this short term we miss the opportunity to to make the long term a better picture. And I think if we can get through the next year, but in doing so establish some long term principles, whether that's way of working, whether that's governance, whether that's player welfare, which is obviously what drives everything that we do, then I think that can be the first step in in a in a long term positive direction. And and as we said throughout, you know, the welfare stuff is just front and centre for us. And yes, that is game limits and that is, you know, season structure, but it's also mental health provision and it's also the work that our development managers do in the clubs and and all the things which very kindly Mark and Stephen have credited us for but I remain optimistic about the future it's going to be a challenging year without a doubt but I think there's a lot there's a lot of long-term upside if we approach it in the right way. Finally Mark Evans you started this conversation by saying that, that you that you initially felt positive about what Covid could actually do for the game mm-hmm. in terms of accelerating change um you said we're skipping out one round of super rugby to, to to jump ahead to the next thing but but you said now you now you're not so sure with your crystal ball what where do you think we're going to go i mean i, I know that's pretty impossible but uh, the, the 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 broader view of the of, of the game is this going to Im- improve us or is it going to drag us back i really hope so i still i'm always hopeful not always optimistic i think if we as a sport don't take this opportunity we will regret it for decades. It will never go, it can't go back to where it was because the revenues that have been lost can't be won again. They're, 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 it's not when will things come back to normal. Answer is they're not. If you can get clubs back playing and get crowds back, that's just the revenue you were projecting forward anyway. The revenue that you've lost is lost forever. And there are some considerable sums of money including in in those and i'm not party as Stephen would be to what the deal is with the broadcasters and how much they've brought they've asked back or if they've got any back yeah whatever and it'll speak and if it but if it doesn't go back now it'll come back in the next deal because it'll be it'll be clawed back so we're not going back 
and, and rugby was, was as we said, right, let's not forget, as Stephen said, collectively the league was losing between 40 and 50 million pounds in an ordinary year. Who wants to go back to that? Well, I don't for once, and I don't think that's in the long-term interest of players because the good times won't and don't last forever. It's not good for the growth of the game and it's not good for the clubs. So I don't want to go back to what it was because I thought I think and I've said many many times I think the model was broken and I think this is a what is it that horrible horrible glib cliche that makes you sound terribly heartless don't waste a good crisis but but there's an element of truth in this you get most change always when people feel that the current situation won't hold I remember I've been the game way too long I remember the very first salary cap coming in 98 why did it get through because previously, I'll tell you now, two or three clubs were fiercely opposed for it. Funnily enough, they were the richest clubs at the time. It got through because it got to a tipping point where so many of the clubs were under financial stress. Everybody on balance felt we had to do something. And there were a range of things within it. There was a bit in it for everybody. It's always a compromise. But the end result was better than what we had before. You know, and, and that's, I hope, where we are, that we can actually look at and think and be honest with each other and say, look, we haven't got this right. No, no league that loses that much money collectively can argue it's got it right. And there are ways to, to largely fix that, but no one stakeholder can fix it on their own. On that positive note, I think we've collectively solved the problems of rugby. So thank you. <laughs> Very much to um, to Mark Evans, Mark Lambert, uh, and Steve Vaughan. Thank, thanks, gents. It was um, great to have you on. I kind of think that we've touched on conversations that could have gone on for um, a whole season of, of, of Ruck podcast. But um, I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you found it a reasonably positive thing. And uh, hopefully, people will listen to this and, and get a better understanding of quite how hard it is to to, to, to get the game to work, but also to, to realise that it, it could actually. Um, it could actually come better as a result of this. So thank you, gents. Hopefully um, have you back here on, on here uh, again one day. This was The Ruck. We'll be back next week. Please listen, share, give your comments and come back again. Thank you very much indeed. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.